My whole life was a, a search for happiness in all the wrong places. And I tried to find that in fast food, in pain pills, in alcohol, in business, in everything. You know, always looking for that external validation. And obviously that never works. You know, I, I was 320 pounds and a raging alcoholic, but those weren't my problems. My greater problem was that I just really didn't know how to live life. That's David Clark this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What is happening? How are you? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Welcome to the podcast. Got a great episode for you guys today. I am reconvening with the ultra-inspiring ultra-runner known as David Clark. Longtime listeners of the podcast might remember that I sat down with David about two and a half years ago, I think it was. It was episode 113 to this date, one of my most popular episodes on the podcast. So please check that out if you haven't already. Um, it would be a good primer for today's episode. But for those of you that are new or perhaps skipped over that episode, David's a guy who not that long ago was tipping the scales at over 320 pounds. He was a raging hope to die alcoholic and really on a crash course with you know not a long life like his prospects were not looking good and you know people say people don't change but if this show is about anything if there's one sort of theme that predominates everything that I do on this podcast it's about proving that notion utterly false and you know david is really one of the most amazing, one of the most inspiring protagonists in this narrative that uh, I have the honor of weaving weekly on the show because he completely transformed his life. He adopted a plant-based diet. He lost over 150 pounds. He started running and became this ultra running machine who's gone on to compete at the Badwater 135, widely considered the most challenging foot race in the world. He's run the Javelina 100, 100 miles across the Arizona desert. He's competed at Leadville. He did this thing called the Quad Boston, where he ran the Boston Marathon course four times back and forth, all in one run. And he's even run across the United States with a couple of people, including uh, Charlie Engel, another podcast favorite. So how did he do it? How did David change his life in such dramatic fashion? What were the tools he utilized? What was the mindset? How does somebody like David this functioning alcoholic or not so well-functioning alcoholic, fast food junkie, you know, morbidly obese. How did he overcome his addictions, lose 150 pounds, and go on to compete in these extraordinary uh, ultra-endurance events? Well, we're going to answer that today. I've got a few ideas on it. Of course, David has plenty to say on the subject. And some of those thoughts I want to share before we launch into this interview. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, 
then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right. Thanks for sticking with me through all that. Uh, David Clark, again. How does somebody like David, this, you know, insane alcoholic, fast food junkie, you know, morbidly obese, how does he overcome his addiction, lose 150 pounds and go on to run uh, at Badwater? Well, to answer that question, I think you really have to first realize one essential truth, and that is that alcoholism, obesity, fast food addiction, these weren't really David's problems. These were symptoms of a greater underlying problem. And recognizing that uh, I think was the first step in David being able to crawl his way out uh, because this is a guy who just didn't know how to live his life. He, he wasn't just unhealthy. He was utterly broken. And that hope for the future, the journey, the path forward was going to require him really reckoning with that, dealing with that truth and ultimately reprogramming every aspect of how he lives his life. Uh, and as the adage goes, the solution is pretty simple. You just have to change one thing, everything. Uh, and David did that. You know, he really did. He put the work in and lived to tell the tale and has gone on to accomplish all of these amazing feats of extraordinary athleticism and endurance. And today, 
we sit down again to explore all of it, picking up where we left off last time. We talk about running in sobriety, of course, but also this conversation focuses on the importance of matching our actions with our beliefs. It's about the positive or negative effects of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we also have a very interesting dialogue about that point when a healthy pursuit, something that you think is good for you, suddenly tips into becoming unhealthy, like another addiction or a way to run away from an underlying discomfort or an undealt with emotion or what is real or what is most important. Uh, so if you listen to this show often, you know that I truly believe that growth is our mandate and that we should never be afraid to fail, that we should always be challenging ourselves, that we should always be getting out of our comfort zone and we should be re-examining and redefining who we are. And David is, you know, he's a shining example of this, <laughs> you know, case in point. This guy is now shifting gears away from ultra running and he's dipping his toe into the world of MMA fighting <laughs> with, with no fighting experience whatsoever. It's just absolutely bananas. And, you know, a tip of the hat to that for uh, being able to kind of, you know, not be too afraid to try something like that. And that's really what I'm talking about. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with David Clark. Enjoy. All right, let's rock it, man. We're here. Good to see you. Uh, it's been over two years. I couldn't remember exactly when we first sat down, but I just looked up on the website and you actually recalled specifically November of 2014. So two and a half years almost, man. I remembered because I was heading out to Havelina right after it. So I had uh -huh. that like date association <laughs> seared into the brain <laughs> right well i got to tell you uh you know that conversation uh got a lot of traction people were super inspired by your story uh definitely one of the more popular podcasts that i've had your story is super powerful and i don't want to recap the whole thing but there's a lot of new listeners who you know might take a beat before they go back and listen to our original conversation so it probably uh is worth tracking tracking it a little bit and if you could just give the the quick i don't know do you have like a bullet a bullet point synopsis of how you uh, overcame addiction lost 150 pounds and went on to run at badwater yeah i i, I, <laughs> I used think to, i just said I it used to eat more cheeseburgers <laughs> and drink more beer yeah no a I lot mean, of beer <laughs> a lot of beer you know it was um you know, I, I was 320 pounds and, and a raging alcoholic, but you know, those were, um, those were symptoms. Those weren't my problems. You know, my, my, my greater problem was that I just really didn't know how to live life. And there was, my whole life was, was a, a search, you know, for happiness in in all the wrong places. And I tried to find that in fast food and, pain pills and alcohol and business and, and everything, you know, always looking for that external validation. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of like, I've described it as the deconstruction of a human being, you know, like I, I grew up and had, you know, I was very isolated from the world and, and I didn't have like a lot of the normal structure kids have, you know, I bounced around a lot and I thought that having all these external things would make me happier, kind of fill that hole. And, and obviously that never works. Mm -hmm. And I ended it is up, the uh, great uh, epidemic of delusion that I think defines our culture. You know, it's almost like we can't we can't even blame ourselves because we're so inundated with messages that reinforce that lie. 
Yeah. I mean, once you start searching for happiness, you've lost it, right? Like, at least when you're looking someplace other than if your eyes are open and you're searching for it, you've lost it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> How long did it take you to figure that out? A long time. <laughs> I'm still telling myself that now. Yeah. So you were, uh, I haven't got back and listened to our original conversation, but you, you had success as a business. You were like in sales, right? Yeah. You were kind of like a hustler. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, and, you know, applied that kind of, you had some street smarts and you were able to apply that and gain some success. Uh, well, even while you were kind of a functioning alcoholic, while the wheels were falling off, you were still able to kind of get out there and, you know, get done what needed to get done for a period of time. Yeah. I mean, on the surfaces, like I was 29 and I owned a chain of stores, retail mattress stores. And, you know, I was the smartest man alive. All you had to do is ask me, never mind the, you know, 320 pounds. <laughs> and uh -huh. then the bottle of whiskey in my back pocket, I had it all figured out, you know? And and so paint a picture of like a day in the life at the nadir, like at the bottom. Wow. Um, I'd wake up and, and I actually used to say this as a joke, but, you know, because I was so overweight, I would be like, um, the I exercise all the time. You know, I wake up for in the morning and shake violently for 30 minutes, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but that was the truth. Like, right, every joke has has truth behind it and mm. and i did i had like terrible withdrawal shaking cold sweats vomiting all that kind of stuff every single day and so hair of the dog yeah yeah i mean it's funny like only reason i hesitated is because back then i would say i don't drink in the morning but that was only because i woke up at like one o'clock in the right. afternoon right yeah people you know <laughs> I, I wasn't a daily morning drinker but you know there was plenty of times, uh, you know, more often than not, when you wake up and you're in that condition, it's the only solution because you feel so horrible and your, your, your body and your brain, nothing functions. And you know, if you just have a couple drinks, like that will actually evaporate and you'll feel normal. It's not about getting drunk. It's about overcoming, uh, you know, what you're sort of enduring in, the, in those hours, you know, right after you haul yourself out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Or in like, the afternoon. I had no desire to drink anymore for like the last few years. All I wanted was to want to drink. Like I kind of knew I had to, like mm. you said, just to feel normal, just to get, get to back to good. But I, 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 I didn't want to drink anymore. Like, in fact, I, I was chasing wanting to drink. I'd always try to figure out what I could do the night before, like setting up a glass of water in the morning or, or even trying to like these stupid things like, you know, like, well, maybe if I wake up, at 3 a.m. and take a shot of whiskey and then go back to sleep, then I'll wake up in the morning and want to drink again, you know, and I won't have this, like, <laughs> I know, right? Like, I won't have this, like, terrible deficit, you know, I'll just, like, string it out a little better. And, but yeah. that's it. I mean, I just wanted to want to drink instead of wanting to not want to drink. Right. No, you know? no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't an option. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing how powerful uh, the disease is in that regard. Like, I can remember just wanting to, ha if I could just string together, a couple sober days so that my body could feel okay again, then I would have that desire to drink where those first couple drinks would actually feel good. And I would get to experience what most people experience when they drink a couple drinks, as opposed to yeah. just trying to get to baseline again. Yeah. I remember one time I was, it was a birthday. I have no idea which one, but I had like, I was just wrecked with the flu. I mean, just wrecked. And and I had like this plan of having my friends meet me and we were going to like kind of take over this little bar in downtown Denver, this Irish bar. And, and then I got the flu and I literally like was sitting on the toilet, you know, coming out of one end and then and vomiting into the, the sink 
you know, from the flu, not even from drinking. And, but I got myself off out, you know, dressed up and went to that bar and I, I just like, yeah, nothing's going to get in between you and that. But I was so frustrated because I could, I mean, I remember thinking, okay, if I just take this shot, I'm going to get over, I'm going to, I'm going to beat the flu, right? I'm going to, I'm going to get to the point where I got the flow going and I just couldn't get it. And I had, I did like six or seven shots. And finally my brother's like, dude, and my brother's <laughs> an alcoholic too at the time. Even he was like, dude, you just, it's not there. Uh-huh. <laughs> you gotta go home. <laughs> so at the end, what are you putting away in terms of alcohol and food? man scary scary things like you know an entire bottle before i left the house and then another bottle you know with whatever i was you doing you can't you can't leave the house sober no no i literally no couldn't way. no and and like the fast food the weird thing about like the fast food and stuff is it it changed around obviously just like anything else but you know at one point i was kind of stringing out my fast food use too, like where I would have, you know, McDonald's for breakfast or something. That'd be my hangover food, right? And then maybe lunch. And, you know, I got to the point where I couldn't eat in the morning anymore. Mm-hmm. But I still probably ended up coming close to my my caloric goal for the day yeah. by just that insane midnight trip, you know, with double quarter pounder filet of fish, large fries, you know, yeah, Diet I think, Coke. I think the thing that a lot of people don't realize about full-blown alcoholism is that you don't want to eat even if you're hungry you don't want to eat because that gets in the way of the alcohol you know getting into your system right so if you eat some food maybe it'll make you tired and that's going to impinge on the buzz or whatever so i can remember going out of my way to not eat but inevitably you know i'd pass out and then i'd wake up and there'd just be fast food wrappers like in my bed or like an open pizza box (laughs) and you just rifle through you know five or six cheeseburgers that you don't even remember eating yeah man i don't even like think that i looked at it as food you know what i mean like i looked at it as you know just another drug you know it's just something else that was going to make me feel better did you have the awareness that you were using food like a drug at the time or was that a later no, not even close. I was like way off my radar. Like I didn't even know that I was using alcohol as a drug. <laughs> you know? Like it was just what I did. It was so tied to my identity. You know, it was like, oh, I'm Irish, you know, and, and I'm I'm that guy. I work hard. I party hard. And, you know, at some point in my life, like when I had the stores going and I was making a lot of money, that that image fit. But eventually, you know, that image didn't fit at all, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that's that ultimate identity crisis that happens, right? Like, who am I? So how did you reach that bottom? Like what happened and, and how did you flick the switch and, and move into sobriety? You know, that's the crazy thing, man. Like to describe the, the last morning is to describe almost exactly the one before it and the one before that and the one before that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like all of the times that I should have quit drinking. We talked about that like at the last, mm-hmm. the last time we did that, you know, like all of these times where I like, you know, ended up in jail or, you know, got so drunk I couldn't wrap my Christmas presents, you know, and, and, and the humiliation and all the things that go with that, like that should have been my last day. I should have walked away and said, come on, dude, like you've got, you're better than this. You know, you got people that love you, but I didn't, you know, the morning was just, it was just another morning. And, but I let go of whatever I was holding on to, that last little bit of dignity, fight, whatever you want to call it. Or maybe I grabbed onto some fight, you know, I don't know, but I I surrendered. I was collapsed on my bathroom floor and I actually out loud looked up and I said, I said, help, help me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that uh, that moment of clarity that yeah. you hear about. I mean, a lot of people in sobriety talk about it being a spiritual experience or perhaps their first visitation of a, of a spiritual experience. Is that how you think about it? I do. I do. Like, I... I I, I realized, maybe not at the moment, but looking back, like that, that that surrender was the first time I really accepted that I was in a fight. You know, so it was like, it's not the surrender that I think that some people think of where you just kind of like roll over and die. You know, I was like, I'm getting my ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and it's bigger than me. I can't win. I can't win. So like, I need help. And so what was the first thing that you did to extend yourself, to reach out for help? I went to, well, I mean, I talked to my wife at the time. Um, I went to AA. Um, I, you know, my wife, my, she's my ex-wife now, but um, I think she, you know, I don't know, you know how selfish alcoholics are. I expected it once I said I need help that the world was going to start moving, (laughs) spinning in the opposite direction, right? You're going to pin a medal on your (laughs) chest, congratulate you. Right. A whole team of scientists were going to show up, right? (laughs) But um, I mean, she rightfully so knew that um, this was a a battle that I was going to have to to get in and I'm sure she didn't really believe me. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have believed me. I'm, I'm not yeah, even sure. Well, you me. have, you have, you, you've, you have no trust, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and it's very common for the alcoholic to dip their toe into sobriety sure. and then expect everybody to immediately start trusting them again when they have this robust multi-year history of, of being unreliable and right. not showing up when they said they would <laughs> right. and having a very tenuous relationship <laughs> with the truth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. you know, I think there's a, a lack of patience or understanding of how long it takes to rebuild all that. Yeah, no doubt. But I, I'd kind of played a game, you know, it was a similar game that I, I had played in in business, you know, where I was like, okay, if, if um, you know, I really did have that kind of as insane as it sounds, you know, like this concept that I was, I was smart. Like I'm the smart guy. I'm the guy that has it figured out, you know, and, and that's why I've done well in business and that's why I've done this. And I mean, it was so easy to let that go. And, and I let it go to the point where it was like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm actually like borderline retarded, <laughs> you know, like maybe I am so dumb that I think that I have an understanding of something and I have no understanding. So I, I almost became opposite George, like from science. Well, that may have, that may have saved you, you know, that injection of humility, I think is a cornerstone of actually, uh, grasping what sobriety is and making it stick. I mean, I know a lot of super smart people that, died in the gutter, you know, because they came in, they needed help. They were on their last legs, but they just, they were too smart for the 12 steps or too smart for sobriety and refused to surrender their self-will and continue to double down on that, you know, that fantasy equation that they believed was responsible for whatever success they had in life, thinking that their, their wits were going to be able to, uh, you know, crack this equation wide open and, and get them healthy and it doesn't work. So I think it actually benefits people to turn the brain off and just like, just surrender, just, you know, take advice from people that have put together, strung together a couple of years of sobriety, do what they say, stop questioning it and just let it go, man. You know, like, what are you fighting? Like when you finally release that, that's when you make room for the magic to enter. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I embraced that, like this, this idea that, 
whatever it is that I'm doing from this moment forward has to be completely different than anything I've ever done, you mm -hmm. know, and that's strangely how running even entered the equation because running just seemed stupid and, you know, like impossible. It seemed like a superpower, you know, like people that could just leave their house and run to me was like, you know, you may as well be flying or climbing up the outside of buildings. You know uh -huh. what I mean? So I was like, well, if I can go do this, this thing every day, this like act, you know, if I can just will myself to do this and will myself to go to AA and take these actions that I'm, I'm kind of like submitting myself to that and proving to myself that I'm serious. Cause, cause like talking about my wife, not believing me, I didn't believe me and I wanted to believe me, mm -hmm. you know? So doing you those learn things. You how to trust yourself again. First. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what yeah, I say. Because, you know, alcoholism, it doesn't just crush your ambitions. Uh, it, it breaks your instincts. So your instincts are no longer reliable because those ideas that crop up in your head that sound like a good idea, <laughs> those are the things that get you into trouble. So <laughs> yes. when you can no longer rely on those to guide you in a responsible, positive direction, then you're lost until you can figure out how to rebuild that and be able to trust those impulses again as they creep up. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to get into all the running and the amazing things that you've done with running, but I think I'm I'm, I'm interested in in kind of delving into um how you think about running, your relationship with running uh with respect to sobriety. Because I get a lot of emails, a lot of messages from people, as I'm sure you do as well, who kind of conflate uh, fitness or running with sobriety. And I think there's a lot of confusion uh, there with respect to the relationship between those two worlds, at yeah. least as I see it. So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Well, I think like any relationship right they it evolves and it changes and it gets deeper and you get a a better understanding of it as time goes right like you can get into any relationship and have it never evolve and never change and you get one small thing out of it and that doesn't last a long time typically so my relationship and and view on running has changed dramatically over you know the first time that I hauled my fat butt out the door and, and managed 15 seconds of running on the treadmill to bad water, you know, mm -hmm. and, and even from bad water to now. And, you know, I always, I get that all the time too. You know, that's it, even when people mean well, they go, it's great that you traded addictions like that. That's like so amazing. I'm so happy for you. And right. Like, but I think conversely, what I'm getting at more is somebody who reaches out and says, I can't stop drinking, but I came across your story. So I went vegan and now I'm running. Okay. And they sort of look at that as the solution to their addiction problem. And I'm always the first person to say, listen, you know, going vegan, going, you know, going plant-based, getting out and moving your body. Those are fantastic. But these are not the path to sustain sobriety. Like Absolutely. you've got to do the inside work. Like you've got to develop a spiritual relationship with a higher power. You've got to like at least explore 12 step or find some program that works for you. You've got to find other people that you can tell your secrets to. Like you've got to learn communicate. There's a whole other aspect to it that is fundamental to sobriety. In my opinion, um, I think, you know, like running fitness, eating plant-based, these are all part of my wellness equation, but I don't want people to be confused that that is how I got sober. I mean, that didn't come until after I had, you know, 10 years of sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, I think I'd been running for two years when I really found sobriety, you know, and, and I hadn't used in that time. I had two years of abstinence, 
but I hadn't really found sobriety until I'd been away from using for a couple of years. And I know you and know so what when that you, means. So when you define finding sobriety, what does that mean specifically? I, I mean that that spiritual health, that point at which if I could no longer run, I would still have been okay. Because I think there was a point that at first, for the first couple of years, my weight loss, my health changes, my running and my sobriety were really just one big ball. And I wasn't sure where one ended, where the other one started. You know, it was just all part of new life, mm-hmm. new life. And how does it separate? And when I had my back surgery in 2000, early 2008, end of 2007, um, I think that was the first time that I had to really take that first look, that scary look, because two things happened. I was confronted with maybe not being able to run anymore and also pain medication, Mm -hmm. you know, from, from the surgery, from the injury. So it was like, what did they put you on? Oh my God. All those times that I I went to my doctor for pain medication and and they wouldn't give me any, or they'd give me two (laughs) or three. I actually told my doctor at one point, like, you can't give me all this stuff. I'm like, I'm a recovering addict. And they're like, don't be a hero. Really? Yes. Yes. Don't be a hero. Like wow. we'll worry about that once you get out of pain. And so That's terrible it's all unbelievable, man. And that wasn't my doctor, my surgeon who might be listening, but that was like my, my general, um, my first uh-huh. doctor that I went to. So like oxys and things like that. Luckily, Vicodin. no, but Percocet, uh, Percodan, Vicodins, all that kind of stuff. And how man. long were you on that stuff? You know, I resisted it. Actually, I didn't take anything um, through three or four months while I had two herniated discs and I was going through rehab and stuff. And then, well, I had one massively herniated and one severely bulging and the second one herniated. And when that happened, I couldn't even stand up. And, and that's when I finally said, okay, I'll, I'll, whatever. At this point, I'm, I can't even think about anything, but not being in pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pain was so severe and they had two weeks I had to wait to get into surgery. So I took them then and then they put me on a, a ridiculous, I wish I'd have saved it, painkiller schedule for after my surgery, you know, and it was like, I think it was taking like 10 Percocets a day, you uh-huh. know, and that would last for like four days and I went down to six and then they switched me to Vicodins and slowly weaned me off. And I got so twisted up inside from having this and taking it and wondering what it meant and all that, that I just took it all and flushed it down the toilet. Mm-hmm. And well, it activates the beast. It, it activates the craving. I mean, when you're in a ton of pain, it's not like you're getting high though. Right. Or were you getting like, well, no, the getting- men- I wasn't, but like, you know, like you, you push back against yourself. You're like, well, I don't want to use this to get high. I'm going to take it as prescribed. And then all of a sudden you're looking at the clock and you're waiting for yeah, your time. That's to what come. I mean by it activates that, yeah. cre- you know, that, that little monster creeps up and says, Oh, here yeah. we go again. So it was just a matter of time before I started just swallowing them, you know, mm-hmm. by the fistful. So that I, I, or chewing them up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I threw them away, you know, mm-hmm. and it was painful. <laughs> it was a tough decision because I knew yeah. they weren't going to give me any more. They wouldn't believe me if I told them I flushed them. But well, it's interesting because I think that that's another, like that's another layer of surrender, right? Like in, in, in retrospect, do you look at that as like a gift? Because Absolutely. sort of removing running made you look at other aspects of how you were living and had to grapple with like what it all means. So you weren't just relying on running for your kind of sober solution. Absolutely. hundred percent. And, and to, to the point you made earlier about like that, the, the person who's trying to grasp a hold of running as a, as a, as a lifesaver, you know, to get out. Um, I think it's really easy to look at, you know, 
bad water and some of these extreme events and think that, you know, doing these ultra marathons has taught me this, you know, skill of this will and this perseverance and all these mental skills that you develop from running ultra that, that translates to my recovery. And that's totally backwards, totally backwards. So explain that. Recovery and the, the work, the initial stages of, of finding how to be happy internally without looking to something outside of me, those are the skills that taught, that kept me in the game at Badwater, you know, mm-hmm. trusting the process, knowing I don't have to have it all figured out right now that I can, I can just feel this without making it instead of using the pain to create a, a picture in my head that I can just let it be what it is. Like, this is just pain. This is just pain in my legs. You know, I don't need to respond to that. I can just keep moving. And that was from, you know, sitting in the chair in my living room thinking, how am I going to never drink again? You know, and going, you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to worry about that right now. You have to just. Well, yeah. it trains you to constantly bring yourself back into the present. Yes. And this perpetual, uh, you know, <clears throat> cycle of surrender, surrender, surrender. And understanding that within that surrender is actually power. Not It's not a giving up. No. It's actually a way of like marshalling the troops in yes. a certain respect. And to continually bring it back to the present translates beautifully into, into athletics, especially ultra when the distances and the times are so overwhelming that the only way through is to just continually anchor yourself in the moment of what you're experiencing and trust that if you're feeling lousy, that can shift. Or if you can just get to, you know, five steps forward, then you'll deal with what comes after that, after that, and not having to control that process and, and have a clear vision of where it's going to lead you and being comfortable with that. Absolutely. And, and I think it can relate directly to like, my first holidays, for example, like everyone that's an alcoholic, you know, struggles with that, you know, first mm-hmm. holidays, like how am I going to get through the holidays? Right. Or as soon as you get sober, it's like, how am I going to do this? I have to go to a bachelor party in, right. nine, in nine months. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what if I go to Ireland in 10 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was like actually one of mine. <laughs> but, you know, so like I, I was, I don't have to, I don't have to not drink on Christmas morning now on October 1st. Right. I can worry about that. Mm-hmm. on December 25th. And it was the same thing for me in in running. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to run 100 miles right now. You know, I can run that 100th mile <laughs> later. Uh-huh. I'm just trying to run mile 1, you know? And um I think that that got me through my first few ultras and stuff like that, but it also translated later, you know, like in in trying to be more competitive in running, it was more surrender. You know, and it was like okay, well, now I'm capable of running 100 miles at X speed. And, you know, you you start to build up that pressure on yourself of, you know, everyone's watching and, you know, they think I can, I, I got to get first place, mm-hmm. I got to get second, top 10, whatever it is. And, and knowing that the only thing I have control over is now. And if I run this entire race in this moment, the best I can in that moment, then I'm never going to regret whether I come in first or hundredth, the results a, take care of themselves. And that's a direct skill from recovery to running and not from running to recovery. Cause mm-hmm. I've, I can't remember the last time I, I finished a run and went, Oh shit, that was what I thought during that run is really going to help me on my recovery tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I never experienced that. Uh-huh. <laughs>
All right, so 320 pounds. How long does it take you to get, what do you weigh now? Like 170 or something like that? Actually about 158, 159. I've been training a little bit. Yeah, how long, (laughs) we're gonna get into it, don't worry. How long did it take you to drop down to fighting weight? Um, So I went from 320 to about 185, training for my first marathon. It was about 15 months total. Uh Um, Actually the weight loss part was about nine months. 15 months to the marathon. Um, and I stayed there for a long time. And 185 was fine. It was good. I liked the way I looked. I liked the way I felt. And you and did that just through running and sort of controlling your appetite? Was there like a protocol to that? There was. Um, uh, I, I chose like the glycemic index kind of as, as my holy grail of nutritional choices, the filter at which I, I ran everything through. And I ate very like um, kind of paleo, honestly. I, I ate like lean meats and greens mm-hmm. and that worked fine for me and it was really the when i was decided to get a little more serious about running in terms of not like taking myself too seriously but like what can i do you know what i mean i i, I had this picture that i was uh, of who i was i was this 320 pound alcoholic this guy who you know was tragically fat and 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 always you know coming up short on and always this close to doing something really great you know and all this kind of garbage that i'd placed on myself and I busted that apart and became something new. I became, you know, a runner, a sober guy. And mm-hmm. and I lived in that place for a while. And eventually I was like, well, maybe because part of that image was that I'm just a mid mid to backpack athlete. You know, I'm not out there trying to win these things. I just just doing this for fun. And I, was, I questioned that, too. I was like, well, what if that's just a bunch of shit, too? Mm-hmm. You know, what, is that just some comfortable zone that you pigeon hold yourself into? And so I was like, well, let's see, you know, and, and I started I became a plant-based athlete just as a, a experiment, you know, like give it 30 days and see, see how you feel. And, and what, what inspired you to do that? Did you read a book or watch a documentary? I read like this book what? called Finding Ultra. Oh, come on. You've probably read Scott Jurek's book. <laughs> no, it was before yeah. Scott Jurek's book, man. Come on. Our I didn't books know. came out at the same time. So no, they you, did not. Yeah, they did like within a month of each other. Finding Ultra and Eat and Run? Uh-huh. No way. Yeah, they came out, like his came out maybe a month or two before mine. That yeah. doesn't seem possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would have yeah, guessed yeah. like, three years of no 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 we were it was all it all happened oh wow almost simultaneously no and, and but no like i did read your book and uh, i didn't know who scott jerk was and i knew that there was this kind of you know underground thing in ultra running you know about that diet and that thing and so i, I just figured i'd try it you know mm-hmm. like i was very interested in the concept of making my body become the ultimate machine you know like what what is optimal what what am i capable of doing what and where do you think that impulse came from just just the the insanity that's me i don't know <laughs> i don't know guy cuz I, I i don't know i tended i tend to do brain surgery with a chainsaw you know was it was it was it sort of an internal promise that you made to yourself i mean is it like i'm i'm interested in whether that's reparations for the wounds, you know, self-inflicted wounds, or, or whether you felt yeah. like you wanted to prove something to the world or to other people. No, but no, I, I don't think so at all, honestly. I, I was more interested in, like, I just finished writing out there. And my book is very much about that whole concept of identity and how it's so important for human beings that we match our behaviors and our concept of who we are. And when, when, the, and when they're not in alignment, there's conflict. And I couldn't ever get sober or healthy because I never viewed myself as that person. And I'd always try to change my behaviors to, to make me change. And when I got it, I won't 
say right, because I don't know what right is, but when I got the result I was looking for, it was when I changed my concept of who I was. I was like, well, maybe this isn't who I'm supposed to be. It would make sense to me that I screwed this up, right? So the results were dictating your identity rather than saying, this is who I am, and then and then adopting behaviors that match that. Yeah, that's how I kind of got out. I was like, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be this 320-pound tragic drunk, right? Maybe I'm an ultra-marathon runner, and I just screwed it up somewhere along the line. And it made sense to me that I would have screwed up who I was supposed to be somewhere along Uh the line, so I bought into that. And I changed my behaviors, changed naturally when I changed my identity. And it took a lot of faking it at first, you know, like what does a runner do? A runner runs. So I'm going to go run. What does a runner do? A runner eat, doesn't eat this, you know? And anyway, so here I found myself two, three years into sobriety and, and being a runner. And I found myself saying all these things like, oh, I start off slow and taper off and I'll never be a fast runner and I'll never do this and I'll never do that. And I just heard that voice one day and it reminded me a lot of the 320 pound Dave, you know? Reminded me a lot of that. Like I'm imposing all these limits on me. And I was I was more interested in like, can I break down that paradigm? Can I break that down? And like what happens if I don't fear putting myself out there to run faster? Can I can how fast can I run? How fast can I do hundred miles? Mm-hmm. How fast can I do fifty? It's amazing how we all, all of us, create narratives, stories about who we are yeah. that craft our identity. And s- they're they're just basically illusions. Like yeah. even even the good ones aren't true. You know what I mean? Like none of it's true. We just make this decision. Like I'm this person. I'm the person that does this. Yes. And if you can un- unpack that and kind of transcend it and say, well, let's create a new narrative and reinforce that through behavior, you create a brand new story. That's the key. And like because there's always evidence to supply either way, right? Like if you say oh, I'm the stupid person, right? I'm the person that always, and then you lock your keys in the car. You're like, oh, see, right. look, you I lock my keys identify, in the car. Yeah, like there's always evidence to support what, but like certain aspects of your life pop out to you as being more salient or important than others. Yeah. And you use those as examples to fuel that story. But your life is a, a spectrum of a million, <laughs> a billion decisions and, and behaviors and activities. So why are you self-selecting the ones that reflect poorly on you as opposed to the things that you, you could just choose to look at all these things that happened throughout your life that were blessings, that could fuel gratitude, that could make you feel good about yourself and your place in the world? Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm not hardwired to do that. That takes a tremendous amount of you know yeah. energy and discipline to do, but- it's always inspiring to hear people that can shift that narrative and crack it wide open and do something different. I mean, when I, you know, one of the things Josh Johnny always says is he decided that in his sort of quest to, you know, become the person that he is now, which is similar in certain respects to your story, he lost 200 pounds. He decided it wasn't about weight loss. No. He wanted to be an athlete. And when he forgot about the scale and just focused on trying to be a better athlete every single day, the weight coming off was a simple byproduct of changing that narrative about who he was. It came along for the ride. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And that's, that's what I didn't care about whether I ran a slow race, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but I did care about convincing myself that I'm a slow runner. I did care about that. Right. You know what I mean? Just in the same way that I didn't, I didn't, so the cared first, about being 320 pounds, but I cared about looking at myself as someone who is supposed to be fat. Right. So the first marathon, what was your time in that 445. one? 445. 445. All right. And what's your fastest marathon now? I've, 
I mean, you're you go way longer than marathon. I know marathon's not your specialty. The only reason I hesitate but, is because like my official, I have run a sub three in training, uh-huh. but my official marathon PR in a race is three twenty six. But it was the day after a fifty. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like only you would go out and like try to PR a marathon the day after a fifty. I didn't really That's try, hilarious. which is probably why I did it. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> We talk about this in much more depth in our earlier podcast, and I definitely suggest everybody go and check that out. It's episode 113, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes up to that. But, uh, you know, you go from running these marathons and then tackling, you, you go and you run Badwater, you know, arguably the hardest foot race in the world, 135 miles through Death Valley, hottest temperature on planet Earth, like just this insane race, and like you conquer it. And in many respects, you could consider that to be you know, kind of a crowning achievement that symbolizes this extraordinary journey that you've been on from the 320 pound alcoholic into, you know, a true athlete. Very few people on planet earth are able to do something like that. But for you, it's not enough, right? So you got, you got all kinds of more challenges you tackle after this. You do like the quad Boston, right? You you decide (laughs) you're going to run Boston, like back and forth four times, right? (laughs) Yeah. You do that. And you're trying to break all these world records on the treadmill and you're doing all kinds of stuff all over the place. Right. So this is, this kind of brings it back to, um, an argument that you raised a couple minutes ago about people looking at you and saying, well, you've just transferred addictions, right? And so I think there was a good period, and this is what I really wanna get into today, because I think this is super interesting. There was a period of about a year where I was sort of following you on social media, and even I was like, I think David's losing the thread, man. He's like gone off the reservation. Like, how much is enough? Like, he's become maniacal about this. Like, at some point, he's gonna have to find a balance point with this, because it's not a sustainable, lifestyle and you just seemed hell bent on just going from one challenge to the next and like not even giving yourself a break in between these. So what was going on with you during that time and how do you like, you know, describe what you were doing and like how you think about it? Yeah, for sure. Like, well, I mean, the one thing, like when we talk about you, you mentioned the, the things we put on ourselves for identity on this type of person. And one thing that is, is actually very important to me is that I never want to be the type of person that's afraid to fail, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I want to do what is just on what I think is just on the outside of what I'm capable of. I want that as an athlete, as a man, as a person, as a human, like every and everything. And so I think like my, my intention at first was to just like constantly challenge myself to be outside my comfort zone. And I was like, um, I'd done bad water and I'd, and I'd done some things and, 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 as the universe conspired to present itself, like I had my 10th sober birthday coming up, 2015. And I was like, man, like, I wonder what I would have done with a 10 year anniversary when I was an alcoholic, you know, like what I have tried to drink for 10 hours nonstop, you know, cause that, I mean, that's like the kind of thing that I would have done. Like I always did this weird thing with numbers and dates and things. So I like, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge myself to do 10 epic events as I determine them. But I called it the, this, the Zen 10, because I was part of the challenge was I want to be more present and more aware in these events that I've ever been before. I want to let them unfold in a way that, you know, that I'm just really grounded to them and I can learn something about myself and my limits and all these things. So I had this like kind of monkish aspirational thing hidden into it, you know, and, 
and I did it, you know, and I, and I went through it and I don't regret it at and all. So what were the 10? <laughs> they were like, um, Rocky, the U S national trail championship at Rocky raccoon. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to go after that was the main reason I was doing that is I wanted to run my fastest hundred ever. Uh-huh. And I came short of that. Right. Cause that, that's like a pretty flat course, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I had run like, you know, crazy for me, crazy sub 18 and came in second place this hundred. And I was like, I just want to see if I can, what did, what am I capable of doing? And mm-hmm. so that was the first one. And then, um, then I did, uh, in March, I came out here to LA and I did the, try to break the 12 hour world record for the greatest distance running a treadmill in 12 hours. And then I ran the LA marathon right after it mm-hmm. for, um, for a nonprofit that works with addicts. And then I did the quad Boston and, you know, I did a hundred. You mile. have let's talk about the quad Boston <laughs> for a minute, though. So you, you, uh, did you have problems like with access to the course and all that kind of stuff? Like, did you have to jump through a bunch of hoops for them to even let you do that, or did you just kind of fly under the radar? You know, somewhere in between. You know, I did want to include the the BAA in that, you know, because I didn't want to get pulled off the course, and they 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 appreciate us being honest with them, so they just gave us some guidelines, like we weren't allowed to wear hydration vests or anything like that mm-hmm. and honestly i mean this, the roads were all open for the first two and a half or three marathons you know like there's people that do this nighttime midnight bike ride that i didn't even know about that happens and they're like all neon lights and polka music uh-huh. it's, i had a lot of company out there so you started what which which marathon was the marathon that actually everyone else was running was that the last the one. last one yeah. okay so you did <laughs> so you started like the day before basically yeah i wanted to do it four times in one day so i started we we i started like i think it was 5 p.m the day before because my mm-hmm. my wave went off at like 11 a.m or something like that. right so yeah. so all right so you so 5 p.m and started at the finish ran out to hopkinton <laughs> uh-huh. ran back Ran out to Hopkinton. And then and you're just continually running the whole time. Like yeah. it was just a, a, an ultra all the way through. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And it was, it was crazy. It was like, well, I mean, and we did it the way I designed it was like the, the first one, each marathon was f- for a purpose. And it, the first one was for the people who are still out there struggling. Um, second one was for the people that made it out, found recovery like myself. The third one was for the um, families affected by addiction. And the last one was for those lost and specifically for a, a local Boston girl, Sophie Kelly, who um, passed away. She died of heroin overdose at like 17, 17 or 18. And I ran the last one with her mom. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful, man. And it was, it was to this day, I mean, I've done a few of these like really crazy kind of things. And this is the one that, because Runner's World did a story on it before. And so like there was people standing out on such and such street corner in the middle of the night with the magazine tell me about their daughter and boston has been massachusetts in general has just been like de- devastated with heroin and mm-hmm. and kids and it was just crazy how many people came out and had a story did you have a bunch of people run with you for stints yeah yeah i had i always had someone with me the whole time uh-huh. yeah and how do you, people are going to kill me. This is a bit of an aside, but people are going to kill me if I don't ask you like how you fuel when you're running such long distances. Like, what are you eating? What are you drinking? That one was tough because we couldn't carry hydration packs. So uh-huh. like and at first no- it was cool. Like the, the, the crew car, you know, would, yeah. would be there, but I potatoes, potatoes and salt and water. You know, I've tried everything, gels and powdered drinks. And I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that I can, I can eat just about anything to, you know, better, better performance on some than others, but real food is really it. Like mm-hmm. separating salt, 
water and calories was was uh -huh. so like depth. sweet potatoes or like how are you chewing like you actually like baked potatoes or mashed potatoes yeah so both like so sweet potatoes will take a sweet potato like a small sweet potato and put a um a a, a fig in it uh-huh or or even a date and so there's like a sugary thing too in there and then with the regular white potatoes just boiled and then salt on them right 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 nothing tastes good when you're running anyway so what, no. what the hell does it matter but, you know? but yeah but i mean <laughs> there's no way you're doing gels on something like that like that's not gonna work gels do work for me you know like even in the super long stuff yeah yeah mm. like i mean all of the crazy treadmill stuff i've done like if i'm going fast i'll do gels for the first 50 miles of 100 because mm. real food's hard to digest if you're running really hard mm -hmm. for me and then I'll switch to the food later because at some point, you know, you just can't stomach another damn job. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get, you're going to have a, a revolt down there, right? <laughs> and it, it's also tricky when you start taking in that much sugar, you got to keep priming the pump yeah. or you're going to have like a crash. So I do peanut butter too. I do mm -hmm. peanut butter, avocados, and potatoes typically. Uh -huh. But the way I work it out is I'll usually start with five foods and the five change. And I just figure out I got to get 200 calories every hour from those five foods. Mm -hmm. And no, like, maltodextrin drink, like, powder, no. carbohydrate or anything like that? No. Good to know, man. All mm -hmm. right, so you do the quad, Boston. You, too, can that be a mediocre runner. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. There you are. You're telling know, a right? story about yourself, you know? Less, less people confuse me with Scott Jordan. Very few people on planet Earth can do what you do. Um, all right, so you do the quad, Boston, and then what comes after that? You got more treadmill stuff, right? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I did a, a hundred mile treadmill run that came about. Um, I might be confusing years here, actually. Yeah, that was a different one. No, I did a hundred mile treadmill run in October. That was like event number six or something like that. Uh -huh. I did uh, Badwater as part of the, the the ten events. I did Leadville. I did. Um, Squaw Peak, which was, um, the Squaw Peak was an interesting one because that was like kind of a mini surrender in the middle of all this that I, I was like, okay, all 10 of these don't have to be better than the one before. Uh -huh. Right. Like, so, so alcoholic, I know. Right. I'm like, so I'm going to just make this 50 miler that I was going out to speak at. And I'm going to make this the combination of speaking there and sharing and running with, because it was for a group called Addict to Athlete in Utah, and running with them, you know, and not running my race, but running and supporting them along the course was like, I think that was event four or five or something like that. Mm -hmm. So was it, there, there was one event though, where kind of the wheels fell off the wagon and you kind of had a reckoning with what exactly it was that you were doing, right? Wasn't that Leadville? No. What it was, was it? It was, it was actually after all of the 10 events. It was the next year. So what happened is I went through all of these events and um, I, I ended it with a 48 hour treadmill run uh -huh. because it was like the craziest thing I could think of. Uh -huh. Like I really wanted to go How out. How many miles day. did you run in 48 <laughs> like 186 hours? 186 miles. And you're just in a gym? Where did that go? Yeah. Down? Is that, I own a gym in Colorado uh -huh. and I just did it there. And man, I, so, I still have like panic attacks. Sometimes I like... I think that I'm dreaming and I'm still on that treadmill running and then all of this is a dream and I'm going to wake up and I've still got 10 hours left. Did you do, were you hallucinating? Like, how do you... Strangely, I did. I mean, I, man, I got a bad water story about hallucination. Actually, it happened during the, 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 the 10 events in 2015. I hallucinated for like 10 hours out there. What were you seeing? Oh, man. So there was the white line that you run on. Uh -huh. His name was Desmond. <laughs> and he was spinning around 
And he would break open into a mouth and then start talking to me. And then he would like... Disab- What's he saying to you? Oh, at first, some really dark shit. Man. Like, <laughs> I, I'm actually writing about it currently, or I actually just finished writing that part. But like really dark shit. Like I had like a spiritual thing out there, man. Like tell me that, you know, I was a fraud, a fake, that I didn't deserve to be on the bad water course, that this is for real runners and... You know, you faked your way in here and all this like crazy stuff trying to get me to quit. Uh-huh. And that was Desmond was me, obviously. Like, I don't yeah. know where any of that came from. But like it was I had just a terrible race. Like, I mean, at two hours into the race, I was falling down on the road and passing out, falling asleep. Like, I don't know my two hours, two in? hours in. I lost. What was it? I lost. Um, Did you write? When was that? When was some ridiculous, like 12 pounds in the first 17 miles or something like that? Had you just run another event shortly before that or? You're um, just running yourself into the shortly ground. before yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe you have a, uh, an overly eager, uh, or, or, uh, overly, um, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Um, uh, overly eager sense of how long it takes you to recover in between these events. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think muscularly, like if, if I have one kind of talent, if you will, or one thing that I have done well in my running career, it's recovery. I've, um, I usually recover really quick, especially muscularly, but I think there's another level underneath muscularly, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's oh, yeah. harder there's to like define. a deep, deep fatigue that probably takes months and months to, for you to stabilize. Yeah. And, and it was a night start. And like my coach thought, you know, with the heat and the night start and just being a little off, you know, that that can get out of hand quickly. You know, when you have five things go 10% wrong, you know, that that can be a big number, uh-huh. you know, and, but it, it but actually turned out, out to be, finished. yes, it actually turned out to be one of the most beautiful, peaceful experiences of my entire life. And I, I actually chronic or um, chronicled it to my crew. I was telling them what I was experiencing because I knew that was going to be significant to me. You know, like I was describing them what I was seeing and um, what I was going through. And I had these like crazy flashbacks back to being a kid and times where I was like literally intervening for myself in the past from the race, like driving down the road and I'm like in the car with the drunk me holding on to the steering wheel, stopping the car from like hitting, going into other traffic. And it was That's just, it was crazy, man. It was so nuts. And I, like I didn't you, want to forget you, you any went, of it. You, like you went into another dimension <laughs> and like bent time to be your own angel. It was And crazy. protect yourself. Yeah, it was. And, and it became this act of like, I was convinced that there was no possibility of finishing that race. Like, I can't state that strongly enough. Like there was no possibility of a finish. So it became. You're falling asleep in the first two hours. Right. Right. And so it became this thing that's like, well, can you keep going? Anyone can keep going if you have some sliver of hope. Can you keep going even when there's no hope? Like, and that was like what I kept telling myself. Like it has to be, has to mean something more than just finishing. But that's your hope. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. But that's, yeah, that, that, that's where, where it, it meant. And when, when I did finally finish, I remember thinking, looking around and like, like not trusting my crew. Like I kept waiting for them to come up to me and say, you know, you didn't finish, right? 
like we drove you here, uh-huh. right? You you know you didn't finish. I kept expecting someone to say that to me because I was like kind of getting my buckle and I'm like looking around like so it's did I so finish? like your your relationship with reality is uh, so tenuous and still stretched. Is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, man. Clearly. Yeah. So what do you take from that? Like in retrospect looking back on being able to complete that race when you know, to, to coin your own phrase, there was no hope. Like you're going to have to buy the new, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't know, man. Like, um, I think that, uh, I think that was the first time that I felt the, the undercurrent of what we're, what we're moving towards, you know, that, that, um, like, are you in control? Like, I don't think there's anything too extreme in life if you're choosing it, Mm -hmm. you know, you know what I mean? Like I'm all about, breaking down barriers and breaking down limits and challenging yourself. And, and, and if you want to be the best, whatever it is, it takes an insane amount of dedication and drive. And if you're choosing that, I don't think there's ever anything wrong with that. But I think that was the first time. But it begs the question of what is free will with respect to that choice? Because if that choice is being informed by an unhealthy impulse, then that's a different animal. Yes, absolutely. No. And and I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll Mm -hmm. talk to that point, but like, that's where I think I felt like a little bit of the of the conflict brewing. I think that's why Desmond was saying some of those things to me. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, but I finished these ten events and it was great. And I, I I wrote about it and I felt good about it. You know, I didn't feel I felt like it was a good thing. You know, and I felt it was a healthy thing for me. And I um in the next year I was like, okay, so now what? You know, now what does it look like? And I, you know, spent a lot of time with my my kids and meditating and and doing all this kind of cool stuff. And um Charlie Engel called me out of the blue and asked me about this icebreaker run. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I said yes before he ever finished the first sentence. You <laughs> You're know, just like, dying for some kind of challenge, yeah. right? Yeah, and and that became this beautiful run because I went into it with a singular goal, and it was my goal for the icebreaker run was to never have a discouraging moment to never have a singular moment where I wasn't happy and present, you know, that, that I was going to go in with no expectation. Like if I had to run 20 hours a day or 20 minutes a day that I was going to do whatever was asked of me, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and to be clear, the icebreaker run was you and Charlie and a couple other people doing a relay across the United States to to sort of raise awareness around addiction for mental health and addiction and and PTSD and and a host of other things. And I really liked, I embraced the idea of doing something as a team, you know, because I've I've done so many things that were just kind of about me, you know, and even though I'm attaching a a good cause to it, it was still me, you know, and I liked this, you know, my moniker's always been, we are Superman. It's not, I am Superman. Mm -hmm. I got a scar on my back from my back surgery proves to me that I'm not Superman, but, um, you know. So we did it. And I, I think I accomplished that goal. I mean, I, I had a smile through every thunderstorm and, and, and everything. And then here's where it gets a little dicey. You know, I finished this run and and I, I looked up bad water, the start date. I'm really into dates, as you can kind of guess by uh-huh. now. And it was on my 4,000th day of recovery. Uh, I'm like, well, how epic is that? It's too, too tempting to not pull the trigger on that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then I didn't get into bad water. <laughs> and I was just kind of like blown away. I mean, I, I, I really was. How could they not let you in I after your resume of all the stuff that you'd done? I don't know, man. I don't know. But I, 
you know, it was did you piss off Chris. I, I don't think I did, <laughs> <laughs> I but I didn't. And, you know, it was beautiful. It was another it was another good opportunity to surrender. I mean, I remember I wrote a Facebook post. It was like, hey, I never thought I'd get into bad water ever. And I got three times in. And if me not getting in means someone else lives their bad water dream, then I'm totally cool with that. Mm-hmm. But I think I made a, a, a tactical error inside when instead of just letting it go, I decided I wanted to do something else. And, and I'd been toying with this idea. We, you and I even talked about it, actually, on the podcast last time, the double Leadville. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to do the double Leadville on my 4,000th day of recovery. And it's going to be about, can I do two times what I thought was impossible? Because Leadville for me, and that's what my book out there is really about, was doing the impossible. I ran a marathon, but I'm like, okay, lots of people run marathons, you know, triathlon, but Leadville really seemed impossible. So now here, 10 years later, 4,000 days later, can I do it twice? And just for context, explain a little bit about Leadville and what makes it so unique and difficult. Well, Leadville is in Leadville, Colorado, which is the highest incorporated city in the U.S. I don't think it's the world, but it's 10,000 feet above sea level. And it's a notorious race, you know, it goes over this Hope Pass, which goes up to almost 13,000 feet, right at the midpoint of the race, right when everyone is suffering, it's a total nut shot. And it's a race where, you know, routinely the champions that win it, you know, don't finish the next year. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all ultras kind of have that flavor to them, but I think Leadville really encapsulates that. And, you know, it's just got a really iconic guy that's the the figurehead for it and Ken Clover and and it's just it was in my backyard and it seemed like the big impossible. So it's it's a race that um you know, obviously I wrote about it in my book, so it's very mm-hmm. near and dear to my heart. So this 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 had this like really big like thing to it you know it was just like hanging out there for like what is this what can this be what is it going to mean and so you put a lot of expectation on yourself and a lot of energy and a lot of excitement about tackling this crazy challenge and and i invited like a friend to come out who's who's a filmmaker and 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 film it i'm like let's just Mm -hmm. see what happens out here you know let's let's just the suit brothers Yeah. yeah 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 I just saw them yesterday. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Bobby sent uh-huh. me a text that he saw. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and they're great. And I met them on the icebreaker run. Right. And what happened was not what I was expecting at all. You know, and I I told everybody about this because I'm 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 about risking pub failure publicly these days, you know. My life's an open book, literally. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I told everyone about it and um I put it out there in the universe and, and I went out to do it. And, um, from the get go, I just knew something was, something was wrong. You know, like I, I, I just didn't feel in control. So how long into it? Well, first of all, did you do, were you doing it like the Boston quad where you're going to do the first one? Yeah. You're going to go from the end to the beginning and then run. Oh, no, I wasn't. I was initially going to do it involving the actual race. Oh, so this was just, you decided, oh, okay, so you're going to do it on your 4,000th day yeah. of, of sobriety, just solo vibe. Yeah, because I was initially going to do it during the race, and I talked to Ken Klober, who's like my second dad now, and he thought that it would um, maybe take away from the people that were doing it for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, so I never want to do that, so I'll just... He's like, you do it, you do it another day. I'll come out there and pace you, you know? And I'm like, uh-huh. all right, <laughs> I'll do it. In fact, I know the damn day it's going to be on my 4,000th uh-huh. day. Like, I mean, it seemed like all the stars aligned for that. 
But I, I went out there and I was going through some stuff with my girlfriend at the time too. And, you know, where we, we'd had this kind of great relationship, but a very, um, not open in the sense that people think when you say open relationship, but open in, in terms of honesty about how, you know, I'm 46, I'm divorced, you know, I got kids, I'm not really looking for this X, Y, Z, you know, we might have 20,000 days together, or we might have one. And that's just kind of where I am in my life right now. But I promise you this one day is going to be really good, you know, and, and she was okay with that. And I kind of came to the conclusion that, um, and I know this is all really personal stuff, but it's just what I do. But um, I hope she's not mad at me. <laughs> but um, like, you know, I came to the point where I didn't think I was doing the right thing by her anymore. You know, that, 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 you know, there was something about, yeah, it's, yes, I'm being honest about where I am, but maybe still not the right thing to necessarily take up her place. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, what I see a lot with that dynamic is still the other partner clinging on to some idea that that will change. Yes. And, and the person and the other person on it, maybe even an unconscious level, allowing that to perpetuate. Yes. And they can say, look, I'm being honest, but they kind of know that ding, 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 maybe ding, it's ding. not so fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's it. That's it. And I and I got out there and I knew I knew early on that um like the reality is like I was this voice just started coming on and it was like, What's next, Dave? Like really, what's next? Are you gonna be out here next year doing it four times? Are you gonna do it ten times? You can do fifty miles a day forever. Like, I mean, we had just got through doing 35, 40 miles a day all the way across the country, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, what does this really mean? Where does this go? You know? And what are you looking for? Like, what is it? Where, what is that hole inside of you that continues to drive you forward into this world? Like, what are the questions that remain unanswered and how is doing this going to answer that for you? Well, I, I think I can answer that. Like I came to the conclusion, at least for me, like, that day one, day one, zero, ground zero of sobriety, I felt like there was a strength present in my life that day that wasn't there before. And that felt hmm, that that didn't come from inside me. And when I found these types of things, I felt like I was going to be okay if I could keep touching this really strong part of me, the part that wants to quit, the part that wants to give up, the part that wants to just take the easy way out, if I can keep confronting that, that I'll be okay if the the desire to like use ever comes back. You know, mm-hmm. if I find myself back in that place again someday, that I still have access to this, this strength. And I think I kept going back there to just make sure it was there. And then eventually... You go, okay, it's there. You know, I've done all this crazy stuff. And then you go, well, how deep is that power? You know, how how big is that room? How deep is that well? And you just start exploring, you know? And what I realized out at Leadville was that 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 well of strength is inexhaustible. You know, it's, it's, there is no limit to it. There's no limit to it. And I had... I realized I had to stop searching for something that I already found. And that running up to that point, I feel like running was, was fine for me. Running was a beautiful, positive thing in my life that running reflected my recovery. 
And all of a sudden, I felt like it was reflecting my addiction mm-hmm. and not my recovery anymore. And I decided that if that to be to be in control, controls illusion, but to be in control of myself in that a moment was more important to me than finishing the race, you know? And mm-hmm. I decided that I had this kind of epiphany out on the mountain on Hope Pass. And I think everyone who's been on Hope Pass has some sort of an epiphany, <laughs> but I just like, I, I saw it. It was like another moment of clarity. You know what I mean? Like I saw it and I saw Courtney and I saw running and I saw Leadville and I saw my kids not with me on my 4,000th day of recovery and I'd separated myself and I'm out in the middle of the woods and like, and it just, I don't know. I, it, it, I just saw it in an entirely different way. And I realized that even with Courtney, that I had found this way to be happy, you know, and, and truly happy in that you could take my business away from me. It wouldn't matter, man. You could take my house. You could take any object or thing that I own away from me. And I know how to be happy because my happy is not, my happy place is not dependent on any of those things. But that breaking point compelled that realization, that epiphany, because I I would presume that like baked into this is this sense that, you know, if you can't do the double Leadville or you're not able to double down on whatever the last challenge was to go even deeper and further and longer and faster, that you're not going to be okay. Yeah. That you actually need that, that you're reliant upon that yes. in order to give you some sense of peace or yes. sense of self that is further driven by this external identity that you've crafted about yeah. who you are and the expectations that then get imposed upon you. Yes, 100%. And and I realized that what I'd inadvertently done to myself is that, yeah, I found this happy place, but when I walked in there, I slammed the door behind me and I wasn't letting anyone in with me. I wasn't letting Courtney in with me. I was like, I created a, almost a jail out of it. You know what I mean? Like, and it wasn't like that for the longest time. It was like, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's not like mm-hmm. that. Fuck. It's like that. Where did that happen? Mm-hmm. And it was just this surrender. And, and I, and I remember telling my friends, I'm like, I'm going to let this go, man. I've got to let it go. Like, and it's not because I don't fucking care what people say. Like, you know, can't do it. Couldn't do it. Whatever. It's just like, I've got to. I've got to be okay. <laughs> what planet do I live on? If I get back to Leadville and I've run a hundred miles and that's failure. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What have I done to it's myself? Insane. It is insane. It's insane. But that's a beautiful emotional and spiritual breakthrough to reach. Like you took yourself as far as you could to get to that point, to understand that ultimately that's not the answer. And that you've got to find peace within yourself that lives and breathes and thrives outside of this subculture of running. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it is the knee jerk response when somebody looks at somebody who's in recovery, who runs ultra, who's covered in tattoos and said, well, clearly this is a, you know, somebody who (laughs) likes to live on the fringe, who likes to push the envelope, who's a person of extremes. They have, uh, they have taken this 
compulsive, addictive personality, and they have laid it on top of the template of ultra running. It's very clear. And when people say that to a lot of people in your position, they balk and they say, no, 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 you don't understand. When somebody says that to me, I say, you're right. I need to look at that. I need to own the fact that I am a recovering alcoholic, that I am somebody who's prone to extremes. I am somebody who's trying to establish some semblance of balance in my life and reckon with the fact that I do feel alive on the extremes and how can I make that work for me rather than against me. But that's like an alchemy that I'm always kind of playing around with, but I have to have an awareness that I can take that too far. Um, as opposed to you don't understand, or, you know, like Mishka, I've asked him this question on the podcast. He's like taking the drink, taking the drug. That was always the easy choice getting up in the morning and putting on your running shoes and getting out the door, that was the hard choice. And that's how I distinguish these two worlds. But yet there still can be that blind spot. And you lived and breathed in that blind spot for a long time until you played it out and couldn't take it any further. And with that comes, I think, a tremendous like growth opportunity for you. Yeah, honestly, like I don't, I said like when, um, when we talked last podcast, like my first AA meeting, I think is actually the very first time I ever listened to anybody in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Like I Uh really think that I somehow made it to 34 without ever listening to a human being. Uh And I think, um, I think that out there at Hope Pass was the first time that when someone asked me the question, have you traded addictions? The first time that, um, I saw myself through my eyes. I like allowed myself to see myself, you know what I mean? Instead of just, I mean, because I think that I did, I wouldn't change anything. Like, I think that what I did to, to, to that point was exactly what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I agree. It, did, I agree it, with that it did meet the minimum standard that I have of is what you're doing, creating happiness in your life, right? Like ultimately that's what it's about. If you can be happy shooting heroin, go do it. I, I, I've never seen that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but hey, if you well, can, it might do, start out happy, you, you know, not real happiness, <laughs> right? But like, I think that um, that it did, and that ultimately, I want to pride myself on. I, there's no truth that I wouldn't rather know than not know. And for the longest time in my life, it wasn't that. It was like there's no truth that I wouldn't want to. I wasn't willing to project onto someone else, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no truth that I won't establish as real if you give me enough time to control everything, you know, and, and I don't, that's not, I don't want to be that guy. I'm, I'm not that guy. And when I felt like, I think as addicts, we know the voice of addiction, we know the sound of its voice, like the, the, the literally the sound of that voice, like identifying your father's voice, your mother's voice, your son's voice. Like I know the sound of that voice and I heard it out there. And I think that's why so many alcoholics and addicts get defensive when they get thrown that question because yeah. they, they know they're, they're getting poked in that, in that place where that voice is being threatened. And there's a little bit of a covetous relationship with it, with protecting it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, don't go there. That's my little special private thing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. That saved me. And you're getting a little yeah. too close to that. How dare you, yeah. you know, attack it? Like it gets to it gets to live and breathe in this kind of minimized, truncated way. 
uh, through running as opposed to substance. And I think that's like or a whatever part. behavior, you know, it doesn't, it, whatever, whatever, whatever behavior that you kind of translate that impulse into. Yeah. I think that's like a part on every human being, right? Like instead of a thing, it's a place in us so that we put stuff, you know, that's really important to us, stuff that we will not be challenged on because it's too important. And, you know, for some people that's like, I'm a good mother, mother, or, you know, I'm a, whatever it is, I'm a, I believe in God, whatever it is we put in that place. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, this is the unchallengeable box. This is where I file the things that I'm going to dig in on. And I put my, my running in there. And Mm -hmm. I think at Leadville, I, I took it out. (laughs) <laughs> so you have this moment. I mean, do you have like a breakdown on yeah. the course? Yeah, actually it's on it's on video. <laughs> Crazy. But um yeah, it was at the top of Hope Pass. And um I just like literally broke down. I was just sobbing like a baby. Like but it was it was beautiful. It like was like a cathartic epiphany. Yeah. And so how do you articulate what that is and what that what that means and how that has changed your perspective on not just your running, but how you're living. Well, what I said out there, and, and I think that it was, it's more, I haven't found anything that's, that's, that's a better description of it since. But what I said out there was that um, I had to answer the question of how big I want running to be in my life. You know, how much of my life do I want occupied by running? And I need running to be, serve a different purpose in my life. I'm still going to run. I love to run. You know what I mean? I, it's, it's, there's something beautiful about running, something peaceful. And I do some of my best thinking when I'm running, but it doesn't have to be a mechanism to test who I am. It doesn't have to be a, a mechanism for self-discovery even anymore that I'm not done discovering who I am or just, self-flatulation. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm done using running to discover who I am. You know what I mean? Like I want to pursue ultimately like, you know, how much I can love and how much I can give and how much of my ego can I let go and how much, you know, can I ground myself and be balanced? I want to continue to pursue that. I'm just not going to do it through running. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I've got to find another way to do that, that running is going to be something different for me now. Mm -hmm. That's pretty powerful. And that takes a lot of courage because you're your attachment, your connection with running and how it's crafted your identity is so powerful. Yeah. So it's a, it's a courageous move into the, uh, into the abyss a little bit. Thanks. But so (laughs) we got to talk about this, like, (laughs) like how this is translating now you're like getting ready for an (laughs) MMA fight. I mean, what the fuck is going on? Well, that, yeah, that, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't, segue well doesn't (laughs) (laughs) that happened very interestingly like um i didn't like say okay i'm not gonna run now i'm gonna go now i'm gonna be an mma fighter (laughs) like i just was like what are you doing actually one of the um amazing gifts that's come from the book is is meeting so many like people Uh people um you know just people that you bump into anywhere at a marathon or race and then other people who you know have been a big figure in your life and then all of a sudden like they're in your life. And Pat Militich is one of those guys. You know, I've been a, a UFC fan my entire life. And Pat Militich is five-time UFC champion, you know, invented Militich fighting systems, you know, trained the best fighters in the world. And he read my book out there and he was touched by addiction, not personally, but he lost two brothers 
And um, he also, he found my book, but he was going to train for Leadville. He like, he's mm -hmm. like done with fighting and he's like looking for the next big challenge. And so we just kind of got connected. And you'll it, train, you'll train him for Leadville and he's going to train you in MMA. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. And we're going to do it for the, for charity. We're going <coughs> to, we're going to try to raise a quarter of a million dollars um, to go into treatment programs. And, but it happened. It was, it was just really kind of crazy, man. Like. And it set up this great friendship where like, I've been, f for lack of a better term, fighting with myself, you know, for, you know, my whole life, right? As an addict and in recovery and, and Pat's like fought the toughest guys in the world. And, and I'm obviously genuinely afraid of getting in the cage. And Do you have any fight experience at all? Hell like no. any martial arts experience? <laughs> Nothing. No. no. Yeah. No. Well, this will be my first sober fight. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, other than a but, few bar fights. But yeah, I, I am an Irish kid from New York. So I've, I've uh -huh. you know. <laughs> and so when did you actually commence training like in a structured way for this? Towards the end of the year. Um, and you had to start at the very beginning, I would presume, like which fundamentals. Is, and Which has been the greatest gift of this whole thing is that, you know, I go around and I go to races and it's like, you know, oh, you've done this how many times? And, you know, you get that like feed, ego feed, whatever. And to do this is like. There is never anyone in the gym who knows less than me. Yeah, it's gotta be like unbelievably <laughs> and, humbling. And who is older than me. So uh, I'm like the oldest guy and the least knowledgeable guy. And it's been very humbling and it's been amazing to be the student and totally and completely humbling yourself to everyone there and, and giving yourself to the process. And it's something like I've been missing that in my life. You know, it was it was a much needed, no matter what happens moving forward with the actual fight that 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 alone has been worth the mm -hmm. price of worth getting punched in the face a few times it's super ballsy i mean to just literally place yourself into a situation where you have no experience whatsoever it's got to be terrifying but also that's the ultimate way to then jumpstart your growth like you can continue to tackle these crazy running challenges but like you know what that looks like i do right yeah so you know, you start to get diminishing returns, obviously. And then you have this moment where you have this reckoning with it. And then to throw yourself into a completely unknown, uh, you know, world and, and allow yourself to be vulnerable in that, I think is ultimately going to teach you more than anything you would learn from, you know, trying to go do a double, you know, Leadville once again. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I hope so. And, you know, it's, I always kind of thought maybe I, I might, you know, do some amateur fight or something like that. But I figured it'd be like me and a guy in the back of a gym, mm -hmm. you know, two friends, something, you know, I didn't expect it to be public. And so when is this fight and who are you fighting? <laughs> we don't know who I'm fighting. <laughs> Although um, I was I was talking to Jake Ellenberger um, here in L.A. Um, Thursday and th they were calling out CM Punk in a big way uh, uh -huh. to fight me. And so we'll, we'll That's see what's interesting. Yeah. He, I, he comes from the wrestling world, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, man, like it's going to be as it's set right now, we don't have an opponent, um, picked, but it'll be the end of the year, October ish, um, probably in Denver at the first bank center. Pat Militich is actually the voice for the LFA, the legacy fighting Alliance and does all their commentating and stuff like that. So the plan is to make it happen on access TV and, and on, uh, on that card so uh -huh. but that's like hilarious. honestly like for me it was like something that i've i've wanted to do and something that scares the shit out of me and i don't like to let those two things live in the same place uh-huh you know what i mean like uh -huh. if 
you don't need to, you know, it's better to do stuff than talk about stuff. And what have you learned? I mean, very few people have sort of trained in these two very different worlds. So as somebody who has a lot of experience in running and ultra running, what have you learned from dipping your toe into the MMA world about physical fitness and conditioning that uh, maybe runners don't know about? Or like, like, has that expanded like your understanding of how to prepare your body physically to be functionally strong and agile? I've p petitioned the UFC to change to 45 minute rounds. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. Ultra MMA? <laughs> and definitely at this early Two stage. Two hour rounds, yeah. Like <laughs> At this stage of the game, the longer it goes, the better I do. That's, uh -huh. that's certainly true. But no, well, that's how the Diaz brothers have kind of distinguished themselves yeah. because they do triathlons and things like that. They have, they're able to uh, last longer. They have a, a more of an endurance background than most fighters. Absolutely. You know, but I mean, it's like it, it, the best way I could describe it is like, you know, there's certainly a lot of the, the mental capabilities of pushing yourself, carry over, you know, being able to calm your mind instantly has been a skill that's helped great, especially with someone's lying on you and you can't breathe and they're trying to hit you, you know, being mm -hmm. able to find a peaceful place quickly is, is helpful there. But honestly, like, it's like getting on a treadmill and someone else has control over the speed and incline. Like when I'm running a hundred miles, I'm constantly dictating what I'm doing. And in MMA, I am not like mm -hmm. sometimes I am until the other guy has a good moment and then he's dictating it and you can't. So what's the old cliche you, when you're wrestling a grizzly bear, you don't wrestling a grizzly bear you rest when the grizzly bear is tired not mm -hmm. when you're tired mm -hmm. like it's like that like you don't so that part has been um just interesting different you know but i've been trying to i, ha I really have no expectation I'm, I'm really just trying to take what's there and not bring anything into it so that i think they're being able to recover quickly in terms of like from being out of breath and being able to you know re-up quickly as has translated nicely but other than that man it's like my head's Time busy man there's so much to think about uh -huh. <laughs> you know? it's you know just when you, you you get comfortable in one thing you realize there's four other disciplines you gotta, right. you gotta work on so <laughs> all right so no date and no competitor yet but definitely well the last lfa card of the year uh -huh. is is, the, is once they establish that it'll be that and that's um typically in denver around october so that's right. all we know and are you still keeping up the running? Like you still run every day or like have you totally dialed that back? I've really dialed it back, man. I'm running uh -huh. like three times a week or so, you know. Um, I think that uh, the timing was good. I think I needed, I've had um, diminishing returns in my running, you know, performance from doing so much racing. So I think I think just the, the universe is so much smarter than we are, you know. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a good time to rest it's it's hard because i feel honestly i feel really fit i feel really fit right now so it's it's hard like i was out at badwater cape fear a couple weekends ago uh -huh. and, and stuff and seeing everyone racing and running and but um no it's peaceful like i don't i don't um i'm not gonna pull the plug on any races anytime soon i did get into western states somehow yeah with one ticket but i haven't even really decided if i'm doing that or not uh -huh. i'm gonna i'm gonna wait and see see how i feel Interesting, man. And so what is, uh, what does sobriety look for, look like for you right now? Like, how do you practice sobriety and what are the routines that you rely on to maintain and gird, uh, 
GERD your program? Yeah, constantly filling the well with stuff. You know, I'm always reading. Um, my my 12-step work has kind of morphed into the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It's like 12 and 12. It's like another version of the 12 steps, you know? And in fact, I actually kind of like did this big comparison on the two once. That, But so I've, I've been really trying to embrace um, Buddhism as I see it you know, and, 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 um, apply that in my life. I think just, and what does that look like in terms of like daily practices? So it means, it means doing the right speech, the right things, the right intentions, the right, everything that always, you know, letting go of projecting myself onto other human beings, always trying to understand that someone else is opinion and point of view and perspective and where they're coming from is as important as mine. And I get a chance to practice that in my business at owning a gym with members, you know, and, and, um, with my kids and with everything. So I, um, I'm a, uh, avid reader, you know, and, and my, my topics, I'm always reading one book that's written from some sort of Buddhist perspective. I'm always reading one book on cosmology, mm-hmm. one historical biography. And then I usually read a fiction too, but I haven't been able to find any time for fiction uh-huh. lately. That's great, man. And you're working on a new book. I am, man. I'm writing the last section of my, my next book. I never thought I'd say next book or, uh-huh. or any book. really. And so what is the, what is the focus of this book? Like how do you kind of move beyond what was in out there? Yeah. How failure equates to happiness. Uh-huh. Um, the working title of the book is DNF. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and the pre- so the premise is, and when I started it, I didn't know, well, I'm not going to give away too much about it actually, but, uh-huh. but yeah, I definitely took all of this stuff kind of happened midway through writing the book. So it definitely changed the outline, a little. Right. <laughs> but and- I wanted to use it. It's definitely strangely because in my life right now, running has taken a step back, but there's a lot more running in this book than there is in out there, you know, Mm -hmm. out there in many ways is a recovery story with a, with a little bit of running in it. And this is definitely, uh, about running and divorce and failure and, and, and how that relates to being happy. Mm -hmm. You know, where does happiness come from? Beautiful, man. And when do you anticipate that being out there <laughs> <laughs> the writing will be done um probably within i'm just writing the last section now so probably a month or maybe oh wow maybe soon two. but then you know but then it'll be editing and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. So I'm, we're probably a few months away. when we first got together i think i mean out there was out there but it was still pretty new right like oh I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was, was pretty much pretty launched Man, so your, your show is really one of the big reasons why the book was is well, cool, man. And and I know as a result of, you know, the book and everything that you've been doing, you've had the opportunity to go and give a bunch of talks and meet a bunch of people. Like what has that, how has that changed your life in terms of advocacy and how you kind of, you know, speak to people who now are looking to you to help them figure out how they're going to get sober or how they're going to lose a bunch of weight or how they're going to run their first marathon. You know what, man? Like, I'm pretty creative guy (laughs) and I've tried to, um, come up with a way that, um, out there has helped other people. (laughs) But the reality is like the book's been great for me, you know, because the gift when someone reads my book. So like, I think my take on it is that when someone's ready to change, they're going to change. The work's already been done. Right. And nothing's going to stop them even 
Like I, I talk to family members all the time. They're always worried about, you know, they have someone who's struggling. They're like, well, if we say the wrong thing, he's going to start using again. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. no. Just like you can't say the right thing to cause them to get help and to get better. You can't say the wrong thing to spin them out either. Once they've decided to do it, they're doing it. So the gift to me is that like when, when I was ready and I looked up and I saw things, I saw your book and I saw, you know, I saw Lance Armstrong's book, which, you know, even though it didn't relate directly to me, it gave me inspiration and I found all these other things. So now people are ready to change their life and they look and they see my book, but that's a gift for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm the, I get the benefit of that. Like, so, you know, I mean... (sighs) It's, it's been like almost at times it feels like the gratitude is heavy for it because I've benefited so much from it. I get to hear, you know, people tell me that they've read it and it's affected them in X, Y ways, but honestly they would have been okay without me. So mm-hmm. I feel like I've got the better end of that exchange. Mm-hmm. But you get to be in, yeah, that was beautifully put and, and very humble of you. But I also think that you get to serve as sort of a foil, like a, uh, 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 a projected accountability partner because if somebody gets inspiration from your story they can they can find a lifeline in that maybe they send you an email yes. you send you write back one sentence and it's just enough to like keep them going on a dark day or something like that and that's a beautiful kind of equation to be participating in um so i think that's only going to continue to expand for you i mean your story is like you know 10 times more like extreme than, than mine, you know? (laughs) So, you know, and, and within that extremes, you know, people can, can identify emotionally with wherever they're at and, and hopefully find a way forward. So I I know there's, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I think there is definitely a, um, I want to say obligation, but definitely like, uh, we're called to stand in the light. I think, you know, when, when you've found a way out, when you've, when you've crawled out to stand there in the light as an example that it can be done, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody reaches out to you and says, I can't stop drinking, you know, (laughs) what, what's, what's the reply? That's because your life's not bad enough yet. (laughs) (laughs) That is my reply. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. And they go like, what do you mean? My wife's leaving me. I'm like, I know. Isn't that fucked up? Like, how bad do you want it to get? Uh-huh. Like, and, and I do that because like, well, because that's the truth and, and the truth never needs to be finessed or, you know, churched up or shined or anything. And, and that's the reality of it is like, we act, we engage in this act of saying, well, you know, at least I'm not X and what is, or counter blessings. And, and even though that's like designed to create gratitude and to see what you have, it doesn't usually serve that purpose. It, it actually justifies, right? It's like, well, yeah, at least I'm not X or in all this. And it's like, well, yeah, but you know, maybe you should really get comfortable with how shitty your life is and how bad do you want it to get? Because when you touch that, then you might actually walk away from it. Mm-hmm. I'm much more politic. I, I used yeah. to be, man. But like, yeah. I, I wanted, I thought for me, like, I wanted, I, I, I need to hear the truth. Yeah, no, there's, there's power in the bluntness. Yeah. Um, my friend Chris Davis is like that, who I had on the podcast. He just like calls it like he sees it, super harsh, but in an endearing way where you're like, yeah, man, that's right. Like, that's the thud that I needed to hear. And I, I follow that up with, honestly, like, right. like I'm, Make no mistake, I'm telling you what I'm telling you from an absolute place of love. 
Like, there's no judgment here. Mm-hmm. None. Like, how could I judge you? Right? Like, I mean, that's like not even on my radar. Like, you know, I, I can't tell you if you're an alcoholic. I can't t- do any of this stuff, but I can tell you what I've been through and the fact that everything you're saying is like what everyone says. And, yeah, yeah, sharing yeah. your experience. I usually say, <laughs> if you don't want to, you don't ever have to drink again. It's your decision. And if you're in that place where you've decided that you don't want to and you're willing to do anything to get it, then go check out AA, set aside your preconceived ideas about what it may be or what it may not be or whatever misgivings or whatever somebody told you about what it is or whatever mental projections you have about it and show up, raise your hand, uh, ask for help, find somebody that you can talk to, that you can tell your deepest, darkest secrets to. Don't be a stranger, participate. Do that for 30 days straight and then email me. I guess that's the difference between most LA people, and New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, and most of the time I don't get an email back. You right. Know, because yeah. they're not, I mean, I'm basically saying like, look, you don't have to, and there is a solution, but you're going to have to, it's, it's going to be hard. You know, there's going to be work involved and you're going to have to do some heavy lifting. Are you ready to do that? Yeah, because I, I think that really, ultimately, as, as, as much as I could shave it down to the, to, the, to the essence, right? Like, when the pain of staying where you are becomes greater than the pain of moving forward, that's when we change. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I like to be that person that says, you know, maybe you should really look around and start actively tallying how bad it is. Right. Or maybe it's not bad enough yet. Yeah. And you need to sink lower. Let yeah. that elevator uh, keep going down. I've completely redefined my concept of, you know, rock bottom and all that stuff. Like, you know, because it sets up this like, oh, you're a high bottomer and you're not a high bottomer. All this. To me, there's like rock bottom is death. So anyone who's not dead is a high bottomer. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So so stop worrying about. You know, like, well, I've only, I've never lost my job. I've never drank in the morning. I've never had a DUI. It's like, well, unless you're going to go all the way till you die, you're going to have to get off this thing at some point, right? Like, so stop worrying about rock bottom. You're there. If yeah, but you getting them to, to be, realize that they have tough. to get off rather than trying to manage it yeah. so that they could drink like a gentleman or, you know, a lady, <laughs> you know, it's sort of disabusing people of that idea is difficult. Way and they difficult. have to, they have to come into that on their own. And that only comes through a lot of pain and misery. (laughs) Usually. Yeah. Yeah, No, no doubt, man. So no doubt. All right, man. Well, I think we got to wrap it up here. Right on. How long was that? That was good. 10 minutes? We got, no, hour and a half, dude. (laughs) All good. We did. We did it in an hour and a half. Yeah. Hour and a half. So yeah, you rocked it, man. That was beautiful. Uh, I loved having you back. Um, Fantastic, man. I look forward to the new book coming out. Thanks, brother. I look forward to this uh, MMA fight. <laughs> you got to keep <laughs> me posted on that. Oh, well, man. Uh, in the meantime, check out David's book out there if you haven't read it already. It's it's quite an amazing story. I think you guys would be uh, amazed at the arc of this guy's uh, birth and regrowth. It's really quite stunning. And of course, go back and listen to our first podcast if you haven't already. Episode 113, I yes, think sir. I said, from a little over two years ago. Uh, and until next time, my friend, come back and tell me how that MMA fight went. We'll do it. All right. All right, man. Cool, man. We did it. Peace. Feel all right? Yeah. Good? Feel good, man. You sure? Yeah. All right. Good, Why? <laughs> no, it was awesome. Yeah. I'm just checking in, dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, All man. right, cool. Peace. It's good stuff, man. Plants. 
All right, we did it. Another amazing, awesome, inspiring conversation with David Clark. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Look forward to your thoughts. Please share them on Twitter with me at Rich Roll and with uh, David at We Are Superman and make a point of picking up his book out there. Uh, it's a really great read. A couple announcements. We have Plant Power Ireland coming up July 24 through 31. There are spots still available. We're doing it at a place called, I thought it was called Bally Valane, but somebody... Uh, was it on Instagram or Twitter? Sent me a DM and said, it's not Bally Valane, it's Bally Valon. Pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. I've been mispronouncing it this whole time. In any event, it's this extraordinary manor on 90 acres in the Irish countryside. Uh, it's really quite the place. And we are taking 40 people there for seven days of complete life transformation, Julie and I. Uh, there's also going to be a special appearance by the Happy Pear Lads. They're going to cook come by. We're going to cook. We're going to eat. We're going to run. We're going to meditate. We're going to do tea ceremony. We're going to have these really cool, intense workshops on everything from creativity to relationships. We're going to have Ayurvedic treatments. We have glamping tents. It's going to be fun, but it's also going to be transformative. That's the idea. And there has to be some intensity uh, required in order to activate that. So we're looking forward to it. It's going to be really amazing. If this sounds like something you'd be into, you can learn more at OurPlantPowerWorld.com, OurPlantPowerWorld.com. Uh, if you'd like to support my work and this show, there's a couple ways to do it. Share it with your friends and on social media. Pretty basic. Leave a review on iTunes. Click that subscribe button on iTunes. And you can contribute to my work on Patreon. And you can find that banner on uh, any episode page at RichRoll.com, any episode page of this podcast. If you'd like to receive a free weekly email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call basically five or six uh, things that I stumbled across over the course of the week that I found helpful or inspiring or informative. Usually a couple articles, a podcast I listen to, a product I'm enjoying, uh, what, you know, a book I'm reading, things like that, um, basic things. And you know, there's no affiliate links in this. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just sharing. So if that sounds like something cool that you want to uh, be a part of, you can just Make sure that you sign up on my website. Any of those places where you can kind of add your email address uh, will do the trick. Also, while you're at it, when you're on richroll.com, we got signed copies of Finding Ultra. We got signed copies of The Plant Power Way. Pretty soon, we're going to be able to offer signed copies of Julie's upcoming book, This Cheese is Nuts. We're loading that up on the site now. Please make a point of pre-ordering that. Uh, that helps us out a lot. It's really an amazing book. It's beautiful. She did such a, a great job. And it really is next level in terms of not only culinary uh, skills, but also the photography, the layout, the aesthetics of the book are, are really extraordinary and one step beyond what we were able to do in the plant power way. So I'm excited for you guys to enjoy that. We also have t-shirts and tech tees and stickers and all that kind of stuff on the website. Uh, I want to thank today's sponsors, 22 Days Nutrition, my friend Marco Borges' company. Again, so happy to have these guys on board as a sponsor. I really believe not only in Marco, but in his mission and what he's trying to do with this company. 22 Days is a delicious and complete plant-based nutrition platform for your life. Rich Roll listeners get 10% off all products, including their meal delivery service and free shipping when you use the promo code RICHROLL. At checkout, 22daysnutrition.com forward slash richroll. Use the promo code richroll at checkout. Uh, also, Design Crowd, custom graphic logo and web design from designers all over the world. Get the perfect custom design every time. Visit designcrowd.com forward slash richroll or enter promo code richroll and receive up to $100 off your design project now. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today, Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production and help on the show notes. And now he's helping me with these uh, intro scripts and the ad copy and everything. He's doing a lot. So thank you, Jason. Sean Patterson for help on the graphics. He does all of the cool graphics that we uh, share on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook and stuff like that. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. Appreciate the support. And I'll see you guys back here soon. Peace. Plants. Yeah.